Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, hey, we want to welcome you again. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Welcome. And if you haven't been here over the last couple weeks, we started on Easter. And uh, the main idea that we started with was welcome to the gift. Yeah, and, and we looked at a parable that so many of us have heard over our lives that basically said if you don't use your gift, then you're going to waste your life and we just end up in places we don't want to end up in. And we said that's not what the parable is about. <clears throat> in fact, the parable begins with this beautiful story about a master with lots of money who gives it to a bunch of servants who are undeserving of that money and says, hey, go do whatever you want with it. And so we said this whole story is about abundance. It's about God's gift, and it's about God's gift of life to you, and it's about just God taking a risk on you. And we said, welcome to the gift. And if it didn't make sense to you week one, then week two, last week we said, welcome to God. And maybe your experience over your life has been, God is kind of exclusive. He's not the all-inclusive God. And so we learned that uh, in this story about the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, look, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? And I love the word that he uses, which is these, which means these are my people. These actually means to be near or around or close to. And he says, we're to Philip, where are we going to buy food for all these people? And Philip begins to quantify and qualify who's going to eat and who's not going to eat. In other words, Philip was saying, these people get to eat and those people don't. And later on, we learn that Jesus gets up and he says, listen, all those people, the ones that you push away, Philip, that you think aren't going to eat, the ones congregation that we push away, that we think don't belong in church or don't belong to Christ, all the people that we push away, he says, All of those belong to me. And he says, here is my Father's will, that none of those that the Father has entrusted to me would be lost. Oh, so we said, welcome to God, this all-inclusive God who welcomes you you into his story. And so today, uh, the main idea is welcome to getting over yourself. (laughs) Welcome to getting over. And uh, I don't know, this may be my favorite week. Um... And I'm excited about it. So would you pray for me as we begin? Lord, we do give you thanks for this time that we can look into your word and discover what it is that would change our lives drastically. I pray today that somebody would receive hope, they would receive healing, and that their mind and their thought, their hearts would be changed about what you can do in their life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it wasn't too long ago that my my kids had the day off and um, Todd's kids had the day off. And so Todd texted me and said, hey, let's do some rock climbing. You want to go to Vertical Endeavors? And I said, sure, let's do it. And so we took the kids up to this rock climbing place. It's this indoor gym. It's a lot of fun. And i got to be honest, there's no prouder moment as a dad than watching your four-foot kids scale a 40-foot wall. You know, it's like, 
whoo, those are my boys, you know. Um, but there is no prouder moment than when you as a father beat those four, you know, four-foot kids up that 40-foot wall. Like, yeah, I still got it. Look at me putting it on you, you seven- and eight-year-olds. Um, totally kidding. I didn't race my kids up the wall. I was down there supporting them. But there was a moment where I had just finished a run. I had just finished climbing up this wall all by myself. And um, I noticed some people were over there climbing the same run. And the, the person that was climbing this run had their friend at the bottom. And the friend was guiding them. They were coaching them. They were guiding them. They were telling them, hey, uh, I need you to bring your right leg up and put it on this peg here. And I need you to take your left hand and grab a hold of this hold, but hold it this way so you don't fall off. And, and I'm thinking to myself, why do you need coaching? I just made it up without it. And like immediately there was this competitive nature that came out within me. Anybody here competitive? Like the minute you get a game out, doesn't matter if it's board game, shuffleboard, baseball, whatever it is, like you're competing. You're in it to win it. Anybody feel like that? Well, that's me. Like I'm glad we have people that are competitive here. Do you ever wonder where does that come from? Where does that desire come from inside of you? And I remember, I remember this is going to sound really bad, but as I'm watching this guy climb the wall, I was hoping that he would just fall. I know, I know, somebody's pastor. Come on, don't be judging me. You do it too. But I'm thinking like in my mind, oh man, I can't wait till he just loses his grip or his legs give out and he just comes falling down 40 feet. And there was something inside of me that just said, I really want this guy to fail. And I know some of you are saying, what's wrong with you? And I don't think it's so much what's wrong with me as what it, like what's, what's wired inside of me. And, and here's what I think. Here's what I think. Well, let me get, I'll get there in a minute. But, yeah, we can do it. What's wired inside each of us is greatness. What's wired inside of you, what's inside of me is greatness. And I remember this voice came along, and I don't know if it was God, if it was just me, or if it was just a guilty conscience. But it was like, uh, I had this voice say, why do you want this person to fail so bad? And I'm like, whoa. Yeah, we're, we're just here having fun, Right? But I think all of us are wired for greatness. And what I realized in that moment is this, and this is a truth for everybody, I don't care where you are in life, is that greatness gets the best of us. That greatness gets the best of us. See, I know you're like, come on, pastor, you have a bad attitude. That's not, come on, you do too. We all do. We all struggle with this. We all struggle when greatness gets the best of us. And what's so fun is that not long after, not long after this experience, I came across this story that I'm about to share with you today. And it was like, whoa, this isn't just something that I struggle with. See, it's not just me, it's everybody. Throughout history, people have struggled with this idea of greatness. And so the author of today's story is named John. And I don't know if you know John, but he struggles with greatness as well. In fact, I just love it because John, um, how do I say this? In John's own account, which he was an eyewitness of what Jesus did in his life, in John's own account, he refers to himself. I mean, I don't know who does this, but John refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. That's supposed to be funny. Like, like, does Jesus not love any of the other disciples? Does he only care about John? Is he only concerned about John? Like, so John just refers to himself as the one Jesus loves. And then on the greatest day in history, when Jesus resurrects from the dead, 
he has another struggle with greatness. He says, the one that Jesus loved, there was a foot race to the tomb, and the one that Jesus loved outran Peter. Like he's bragging about himself in his own account of Jesus's life. This is how great I am. And I, maybe I'm the only one that finds that comical that he puts that little detail in there. But he tells us that he was the first one to the tomb. But guess what? He wasn't the first one to go in. And what I find so interesting is that I think many of us want to arrive at greatness. We're just not ready for the occasion. We want to arrive at greatness, but we're just not ready for the occasion. And so I think John looks back and he's going to tell us a story about John the Baptist. And I know you're like, the author John, John, the, this is going to get confusing. So I'm just going to call him JB. Is that all right? If I just call him JB, I know some of y'all Justin Bieber, but we're just going to go with JB. Um, but he tells us this story about JB this morning, John the Baptist. And I think as he writes this story, he looks back upon it in his own life and he begins to glean from it. He says, man, I wish, I wish that I would have got it back then. I wish that I would have had this understanding about life that JB is about to share with us in just a minute. And so as he writes this story, he's drawing us in to help us understand this thing that he's about to tell us about success and about greatness can actually change your life. But it begins with a path where you would least expect. You would least expect. And so <clears throat> listen to how John starts the story. Sorry, I can't see the screen, so I'm going to put my glasses after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and he baptized them. Now John, also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because he was, there, was, there was plenty of water to go around and people were coming and being baptized. Now, now John gives us this parenthetical thought right here that I think is so important to this story. Like it's not, a, I don't even know why he adds it in, but it's part of the story. And I think it's like a wink. It's like a clue. It's like a, a signpost that's saying, hey, I don't have time to tell you about this now, but I need you to go back and, and figure the rest of this out. And so John is pointing us. I want you to hang on to this because we're going to come back to it. But he adds it in the story. He says, this was before John was put in prison. Okay, this is everything that happened before then. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, <laughs> this is good, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, by the way, it's Jesus, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Can you feel the competitive nature? Can you feel it inside of them? Like they're coming up to, to John and they're saying, hey, um, listen, uh, we, we, we've been looking at you, although you look really goofy and you're dressed in some weird clothes and you eat some weird things and you look like you're ready for the circus. You've been doing some really amazing things and we think that you're the Messiah. We think you're the Messiah. And so, you know, they're, they're really insecure about this. They're really insecure about what, what Jesus is doing. The moment that Jesus starts to climb the rock wall, you, you can hear his disciples coming in saying, we need him to fall. We need Jesus to fail. And, and here is the truth for so many of us when it comes to greatness and competition. 
especially when greatness gets the best of us, is that our perceived success comes from others' failures. Yeah. That's what they needed was they needed Jesus to fail in order for John to become great, to become the Messiah that they thought he was going to be. And so I think our perceived success comes from others' failures. How many moms do we have in the house? Okay, how many soon-to-be moms do we have in the house? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. Um, we got a few moms in here. Listen, uh, this is so true for us, if, if we're mothers. Um, you've been to the grocery store, and you went down aisle two. And when you went down aisle two, you noticed a two-year-old that was laying on the floor crying and screaming their head off because their mom wouldn't buy them a box of Fruit Loops. And you could see it on the mom's face like, oh my goodness, like I just want to pick the kid up. I just want to take him outside. This is extremely embarrassing. And you, just be honest with me. You had your rock wall moment. Like there was a bit of you, there was something inside of you that took a bit of joy. There was part of you that said, okay, I can do this thing. Look at that kid. If that kid's that bad and my kids aren't that bad, then I must be a great parent. Right? Like, in, in that moment, our success comes off of the failure of somebody else. We do this at work, right? Maybe you're like me, and you love it when your coworkers underperform. And the reason why you like them to underperform is because it looks like you're overperforming. Thank you, coworkers. The bell curve. Do you remember this at school? This was my favorite kind of grading. Do you know how the bell curve works? Like, essentially, uh, people who just bomb and fail, there were so many people that bombed and failed miserably that the teacher had to create this curve in order to raise people's grades to where they needed it to be. So based on somebody else's failure, I would often go from a D to a B. And it was like, my success came from somebody else's failure. And unfortunately... This is the tragic motto for most of us. This is really just a sickness for most of us. That I must become more, I be, must become great, and others must become less. That I need to be great, and others must become less. That I'll dream bigger dreams for me and less dreams for somebody else. I must be, become more so they can become less. And you know what happens when we begin to live life in the more, when others become less? We become vindictive, we become cunning, we become vengeful, we become less caring for other people. And it is, it is this sickness that begins to build it on us that our perceived success comes from somebody else becoming less. Is that your struggle? And so what's fun is that John wants us to address the problem. As John writes this story about JB, he's like, we need to address this message of greatness. That, that greatness often gets the best of us. And so here's where he head, heads next. Listen, John says, and he replies to them, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. This is a pretty cryptic stuff, you know. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I've been telling you this the whole time. I know you think I am, but I'm not. But I am sent ahead of him, and the bridegroom belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and in it, it is now 
complete. Now I need to hang here. Just, just one second. You could hear JB talking, his disciples, off the ledge. But as he does it, he draws them to the edge of their seats. And this is where, if you tuned out for just a second, this is where he's drawing you to the edge of your seat. He's saying, lean in, because what John the Baptist, what J.B. says next, not only changes his life, his disciples' lives, your life and my life, but it truly changed the trajectory of the entire world. Because if he didn't do what he's about to say, then he's in complete competition with what Jesus is doing. And so, with great wisdom, with great wisdom, John the Baptist looks at his disciples and says, he must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become less. Wow. In a world where we are making more of us, John, JB stands up and says, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And he begins to address greatness getting the best of us. And he begins to flip the script on it. And so he wants to say, it's no longer about greatness getting the best of us, but it's about greatness getting the best from us. Ah, it's no longer us manipulating greatness for us, but it's what is it, what is greatness going to get from us? And so I just want to start, and this is, you don't even have to be a Jesus follower. You can have questions about who God is. You don't even have to follow to do what we're about to tell you to do. Because here's the insight. This is from a personal standpoint. Did you know that you spend, and I spend, we spend, 95% of our time thinking about us. Did you know that? That you spend 95% of your life thinking about you. And I spend 95% of my time thinking about me. And scientists have discovered something that's really interesting. They've discovered that the brain has become this narrative-making machine. That over time, over time in, in, in humanity's life, they've discovered that the brain has become this storytelling machine. And you're saying, why is that so important? Here's why it's important. You experience people in your life every day. You have random information thrown at you every day. When you get on the internet, I don't know what your search engine is, but immediately when it comes up, there are already ads and things that are popping up at you. And what they found is that you begin to take all that information and you begin to take all the people you meet and you put it in chronological order within your story. That the way that you make sense of everything that is going on around you is 95% of the time you are putting things that you've experienced in your life and making sense with your story so your life will have more meaning. but I love what John the Baptist does. I love what JB does. He doesn't try, he doesn't try to fit Jesus into his story. Rather, he's trying to see himself within Jesus' story. That's really good. I don't, I, that, that's just amazing to me. 
that we spend 95% of our time thinking about us and figuring out how you, that person's going to fit into our story. And that yet John the Baptist goes, listen, I, I don't know how Jesus, I don't think he fits into my story. Rather, I think I fit into his story. And so just personally, just from a personal standpoint, what if we move the conversation from 95% to 50-50? Practice this. We're going to talk about this at the end. But what if every day you encounter people at the grocery store, you go out to, to eat with people, you go out with your spouse, you go out on a date, whatever it may be, you're with somebody constantly. And if they're thinking about their own story 95% of the time, why not join them in the journey of their life? See, here's the key. This is what John is trying to say. This is what it means to become less. What if we just committed to questions in a conversation? Like, what if you just sat down and you begin to ask questions of people? Do you ever run into those people who seem really interested in your life? They just ask you questions. And why are they asking questions? Questions, I think, are people who want to grow and they want to learn and they want to know something that they don't know. And the more you ask questions, the more they get to share about what they're going through and what's going on in, in, in their life. And the more you ask questions, they get to think about hmm, why would I do this that way? Or why am I the way I am? Why would I wish that somebody would fall off of a rock wall? And they get an introspective look into their, who they are. And, and I just wonder, I wonder if, if we looked at having conversations and asking questions of people, it's not something that we have to do, but it was something that we get to do. And not only that, but we could learn more about our lives by listening to other people's lives. In other words, the, the, the greater we make them and the less we become, the more we actually learn about who we are, that we can learn from other people's stories. And what if greatness is not about us, but it's actually about others? That the greatest insight to who you want to be and the most meaning that you'll ever find in life comes by sitting across from people and discovering, discovering what makes them tick, discovering why they're headed in the direction they're headed, discovering why they love life the way they love life. And if that doesn't fuel you, if that doesn't make you a better person, then I don't know what will. So from a personal standpoint, let's move it from 95 to 50-50. But I'm interested also in what it looks like for us as a whole. We, as a community, as a church, as a body, as a, as a people who are, are moving within God's story. What does it look like for us? And so what's fun is, <clears throat> do you remember at the beginning when John gives us the parenthetical thought? Remember that? And he says, this was before John was put in prison. You remember I told you this? He's pointing us to something. He's want us to, wanting us to look at something. See, John gives us, he gives us everything that happened in JB's life up to this point. And he's saying, I don't have time to tell you what happened to John. And so I'm going to put this thought in here. So you'll go and you'll look at what happens to him after. And you're saying, why is this so important? Because John is connecting this idea of he must become great and I must become less. He must become great and I must become less. And he says, the story you're about to read, when you find it, will be a picture. It will be an embodiment of what it looks like when John lives this out. 
And so you flip over to Mark. It's like they planned it. It's like they had a conversation. You flip over to Mark, and it's so great. You know the story. Some of you know the story. They, it tells us that Herod, this big, important guy, kind of mean, marries his brother's wife, Herodias. Herod and Herodias. It almost sounds like Anyway, we'll not go there. Anyway, Herod marries Herodias, and... Um, <clears throat> John the Baptist begins to speak out about this marriage. He doesn't like it. He doesn't think it's right. He doesn't think it's becoming of somebody who's in leadership. And so he just, he calls him out. And Herod doesn't like this. And so he takes John and he, he puts him in prison. Oh, here we go. Now we're getting to the story. This is what John wanted us to get to and understand. He puts him in prison. Now it tells us that, that, that Herod actually liked JB. He thought he was a great guy. And it tells us that he was perplexed when John would talk to him, and he actually enjoyed listening to what he had to say. And so he, they kind of had this weird relationship. I put you in jail, but I really do like you. I, you know, there's something about you that I really like. And, um, and then the story gets really good. So Herod has this amazing birthday and has all of his guests come in, hundreds of thousands of guests. They're eating and drinking, and boom, out pops Herod's daughter from the birthday cake. Can you imagine this? Some girl in the first century popping out of a birthday cake, and she starts belly dancing for the entire crowd that's there. And apparently it was customary for people to dance for other people to, to please them and to make them happy. And so it says that she did a fantastic job, that Herod was satisfied, and that she made everybody happy. And so he leans in in front of this entire crowd, and he says, what is your wish? You've done such a fantastic job. What do you wish? Well, little did Herod know that his friend that he liked so much that he put in jail, <clears throat> his daughter had been talking to his wife, and she said, I want his head. So in front of this big party where everybody's hanging out, having a good time, you can hear it, it's like this big pause. And she says, I want John's head. I want JB's head on a platter. And you can hear the crowd begin to gasp. Oh. <gasps> You remember the guy that we thought was the Messiah? He's about to have him killed. And Herod was not very happy about this. And so he sends the executioner down and John gets beheaded. And Mark tells us that's, that's how he entitles this whole story. John the Baptist beheaded. But he starts this story out with these amazing words. He tells us, speaking about Jesus, check this out. He says, some were saying about Jesus that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That this is, like, this were, these were John the Baptist's miraculous powers at work in him. Some others said that this is Elijah, and others claim that he was a prophet from long ago. But before this sentence, I love it. This is how Mark begins the story, and this is where we make the connection. King Herod heard about all that Jesus was doing, and then listen to this. Ready? Jesus' name had become well-known. That's how Mark starts the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. When, when John the author writes and he says, I need you to go to what happens after John's been put in prison and look at the story that's been written, this is how it starts. Jesus' name had become well known in the community. And oh, by the way, John gets his head cut off. And you begin to hear it. Oh, he must become more. I must become less. 
He must become more. I must become less. Even when he was dead, they thought that he was still at work in Jesus. He said, no, no, no. Jesus is more. I must become less. Jesus is known. John is beheaded. Jesus is known. John is beheaded. And what a great story. Jesus' name is well known, and John loses his life. Wow. What an embodiment of something that you proclaim in front of people that are righteous. He will become more, and I will become less. So I've been asking the question. For us as a community, is Jesus' name well known? Is that how the story starts in our church and in our community and for us as a, as a body of people? Is Jesus' name well known? When they go back and they write about Joliet first in life, is this the question? Is this how they're going to start the entire story? Come on, my role as your pastor, your role as somebody who participates in the life of this church, and our role as a church, as a whole, what does this look like? You see, this question... Every week when I stand before you and I stand up front in front of you goes through my, my mind. Is this about the message or is this about the real message? Is this about me or is it about somebody's life being transformed by Jesus? Is Jesus' name going to be known about it or is my name going to be known about it? This is something that I have to struggle with every week. What does it look like for you? Is Jesus' name well known or is your name well, no. See, look how much I serve. Look at how much I give. Look at what I do. Look how long I've been here. Look at how much I participate. Look at what I like and what I do. And, and, and my question to you is, is it all about you making a name for you in the church? Or is it about Jesus' name becoming well known? Is it about you and what you can offer? Or is it about really what Jesus can offer somebody else? Because let's, let's just be honest. It's not really about you. It's all about what God can do in somebody's life. And so I've been wrestling with this. What does it look like for us as a church? Oh, yeah, Joliet First Church of the Nazarene. That's the church that goes around loving people and caring for people and doing amazing things in the community. Joliet First, they do this. They do that. They're becoming more while Jesus is becoming less. Or is it really about, man, there's this odd group of funny people. We don't know where they're from or what they're doing, but we do know, we do know that they're changing lives in the community by helping, by caring, by serving, by loving, and it looks like they're followers of Jesus. But we don't know who they're identified with. Who becomes more? Are we, are we busy trying to make a name for our church? Or are we busy trying to make a name for Jesus? These are difficult questions. So you're saying, what does this have to do with welcoming? Huh. Have you ever considered that the reason why you don't invite people <clears throat> to church is because it's about your feelings being hurt? It's about you. The reason why churches over time lose their ability to be welcoming is because we think it's about us. Like when you... Come on, it's a difficult conversation. When you walk up to somebody you don't know and you say, hey, I want to take you to this place. I think it'll help you. I think it'll change your life. Would you just come with me? There is a fear. It's like John's disciples. There's fear. There's insecurity. That in that moment, they might just say no. To who? To you. 
And so we just think, hey, for the sake of my name, for the sake of my integrity, for the sake of me feeling better about myself, I'll just not ask them. And you never get to know the answer. And it has not, it's not the answer about what you can do, but it's about what, what God wanted to do in their life. And that's why I say today is about welcome to getting over ourselves. It has never been about us. It has never been about how much we do or what we look like or what a great name we can make for ourselves, yet we spend so much time trying to become great on somebody else's failures. We hope the church down the street fails because then they'll come to ours. I'm totally kidding. That was sarcasm for those of you who don't know me. Um, but what if our mission first was just Jesus' name becoming known? And my question to you is what in your life, what in your life is going, what needs to become less? What will be less of you so Jesus' name can become more? What needs to be removed? What do you need to add? What do you need to take out? What, need to do, what, what do you need to put in? Who do you need to be? Whatever it may be, what will you do to make yourself less so Jesus' name is more? So here's what I want you to do this week. We try to give spiritual practices each week. And again, you don't have to be a Jesus follower. You can just do this. But I want you to go 50-50 this week. Just try it. Just go 50-50 this week. And the conversations that you're about to have are, again, it's a reminder. When you sit down in front of somebody and you begin to ask questions, it's a reminder to you that I must become less and he must become more. I must become less and others must become more. And so I would say to you, commit to questions. You're going to meet with somebody this week. You're going to have lunch with somebody. You're going to go on a date. You're going to, whatever you're going to do with somebody else, I would challenge you, sit down and come up with 25 questions that you want to ask. That could be transmitted to any person that you ever meet or come across. And I'm telling you, your life, personally, not even Jesus following, personally, will be changed just by asking questions. You'll learn from other people's successes, you'll learn from other people's failures, and you'll learn, you'll have insight into your own life because you made yourself less and you made others more. I heard somebody say this this week, it's not what are you here for, it is who am I here for? Not what am I here for, but who am I here for? So would you, would you join me this week? Just go 50-50. And watch what happens. Look what happened. Because somebody stood up in history and said, we will not make our gains off of somebody else's pain. Look what happened in history. Jesus was raised up. He died on a cross. And then he defeated sin and death. And if John would have never made himself less, that may have never happened. Will you become less with me this week? Thanks for being faithful. Thanks for being beautiful. And thanks for sharing in God's story.